right. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? amen. God is good, is he not? He is good all the time. And all the time. I'm so happy that our Mexico team is going out this week. And it's so such a blessing always for the team to have David Earlman with them. Because it's good to have a native Spanish speaker on the team. And so, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. We are in the midst of our, our family, one thing. And uh, as we're talking about the family, uh, you need to know why my family's not here. pastor's preaching on the family. His family ain't even here. My wife is not here, not because we got in a fight, <laughs> but because she is ministering in Southern California today at Thanksgiving Church in Fullerton, California. She did an inner healing and deliverance uh, workshop there this weekend. She preached there Friday night two or three times yesterday, and now she's doing the Sunday service as we speak right now. And so uh, there's been a team that's covered her in prayer. Intercessors want to thank all of you. And uh, she's been posting on Facebook that she's been having a powerful, powerful time there ministering. And my daughter, my precious, beautiful daughter, is with my parents today. And uh, so we will be reuniting this afternoon. Interestingly, I am preaching. I was invited to preach tonight at a church in Castro Valley at 6 p.m. And it is a gathering of African-American and Korean pastors. I wonder why they invited me. Because my household is a fellowship of African-American and Korean pastors. <laughs> so me and my wife, we are a fellowship of African-American and Korean pastors. And so uh, that's going to be a wonderful time. I wish my wife could be with me for that. But she won't be flying in until 10.50 p.m. tonight. By the way, who's picking her up? Did any of you see that message on Facebook? <laughs> okay, we'll talk after. This is part three of our family focus. Uh, as most of you know, our theme for 2014 is Back to the Blessing. And uh, we began the year with a three-month series on financial blessing, January, February, and March. Month of April, we focused on getting ready for Easter, had a powerful Easter service, enjoyed Dr. Samuel Huddleston also the week after Easter. Now the months of May, June, and July is our family focus. We're going to be talking about blessing and the family for the months of May, June, and July and then in August, we're going to rest for a month. And then September, October, November, we're going to be talking about fellowship and friendship, the blessing of fellowship and friendship. And then in the month of December this year, we're going to enjoy Christmas. So that's kind of a map of the, the year. We're looking at blessing in three categories, family, well, first finance, and then family, and then friendship. Now, before we really delve into the message this morning, I, I have to prepare your hearts and minds because I'm going to be talking about some things that might be kind of painful for some of you to hear today. And matter of fact, I'll say that every single person in this room, I can divide you into two categories. Uh, half of you are, actually there's three categories, but one category of people in this room today, you're going to look back on your past and you're going to remember that some of the things I'm talking about this morning were done to you. And you're going to hear these things and say, that happened to me and it was wrong. And then there's another category in this room. Some of you are going to look back on your past and say, I did that, and it was wrong. And then a third category in this room, you're going to look back on your past and say, that happened to me, and it was wrong, and I did that, and it was wrong. But I don't think there's going to be one person in this room who can say, nothing like this ever had anything to do with my past, because we've either been hurt, or we've hurt others, or both. And so talking about the family is typically a very painful thing 
for a lot of people. Matter of fact, Mother's Day is typically a day that is very sparsely attended in most churches because it's so painful for a lot of people. And, um, and so I want to start out by saying that I'm not speaking these things today to judge, to condemn, to criticize, to bring shame or condemnation, but simply to set the standard of godliness for what our family experience should be like. And at the end of this message today, there's going to be a flood of forgiveness that's going to flow over this house. You're not going to walk out of here carrying any condemnation or shame. You're also not going to walk out of here carrying any bitterness or unforgiveness for what happened to you in the past. Because we cannot change the past, but we can bring it to God and He can cover it with the blood of Jesus Christ. And we need to talk about these things and establish God's standard for these things because it can set the stage for the future. And God wants to give us hope and resolve for the future, but the only way He can give us hope and resolve for the future is if He empowers us to deal with the past. And so when we talk about the family, we're talking about an issue where a lot of pain resides. But thank God that He's close to the brokenhearted and He heals such as trust in Him. And so I believe the Spirit of God is not just going to open you up today, but He's going to bind up your wounds. He's going to close you up today, and He's going to bring healing. And that's what I'm believing today. Are you with me? All right, so now that i got that out the way, um, if you're offended, it's your problem. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean that with all the love of Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, I want to ask your forgiveness for being... Uh, drunk with jet lag last Sunday. <laughs> I'm clothed and in my right mind today. <laughs> Although I did have one precious sister come to me after church last Sunday and say, Pastor, uh, if this is how you preach when you didn't get any rest, you should never get rest again. <laughs> so uh, I guess one person liked it. <laughs> right. So I want to talk about blessing in the family. Blessing in the family. When God gives his blessing, he gives it primarily in the context of the family. When we talk about the blessing of the Lord, it always traces its way back to the family. Just as we talked last Sunday about sin and how sin originates in the family and how every sin that has ever been committed on this earth somehow makes its way back into the family system. The things that you experience growing up in your family system, they shape the kind of sinner you grow up to become. But righteousness also has its root in the family. The Bible says that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so if I have any sin issues in my life, it always goes back to my family and to my upbringing. But if there's any righteousness or goodness in my life, it always goes back to my family and to my upbringing. And so God is in the business of releasing his blessing, but he releases it through the family line. And so just as sin entered into the world through a family, so righteousness comes into the world through a family. Now we find in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, the scripture says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. The first thing God did after creating Adam and Eve is he got them together and he blessed them. When we're talking about blessing, we must understand that this very popular piece of Christianese does not mean what it normally is, is, 
is intended to mean when we say it. Because we use the word blessing all the time as believers in Jesus Christ. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm so blessed. How are you doing today, brother? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And typically when we say we're blessed, the first meaning is we, we're saying we got some type of uh, some type of circumstantial benefit, either a financial benefit. I'm blessed. Why are you blessed? Because a cop pulled me over. And he was feeling good, and so he didn't give me a ticket, and he sent me on my way. I'm blessed because I didn't get that ticket. I'm blessed. Why? Because I went to the mall. There was no parking spaces. I prayed and asked the Holy Spirit for a parking place, and he miraculously gave me a parking place. I'm blessed. I'm blessed because I went to the grocery store, and chicken was 19 cents a pound. I'm blessed. Hallelujah. I'm blessed. I'm blessed because a brother or sister in the church took me out to lunch and paid for it. I wasn't even expecting that. They didn't know I was broke. I'm blessed. I'm blessed because my boss called me into his office and gave me a raise. It was unexpected. I got a promotion at the job. It was unexpected. I got an A on the test and I didn't expect to get it. I'm blessed. It's always some circumstantial benefit that we got in a moment and we think that that is a blessing. Now, let me first say that yes, that is a manifestation of the blessing, but it is not the totality of the blessing. And we must go beyond thinking of the blessing of God in circumstantial episodic terms. It's more than something that happens to you today because the same people who will say I was blessed yesterday, the next day will say I'm so depressed. And so we're blessed today and oppressed tomorrow. And that is the life of the typical believer swinging back and forth on the pendulum from blessing to oppression. Blessing to oppression. I need to get delivered tomorrow and then I'm blessed the next day. Now the second category of blessing that's typically used in our vocabulary is some internal spiritual or emotional or psychological benefit. I was so blessed by the sermon you preached last Sunday. I was so blessed by the conversation we had. I was so blessed by the card you wrote me. I was so blessed by the status update you put on your Facebook wall, by the happy birthday. You know, it's on your birthday at Facebook. You get about 3,000 people who don't really know you or care about you saying happy birthday to you. I was so blessed to see all 5,000 people say happy birthday to me. I was so blessed. And by the way, uh, I'm not saying I don't want you to say happy birthday to me on, on, on Facebook because, you know, do that. It's still nice. But that's not exactly what God meant by blessing. See, when he called Adam and Eve together and blessed them, he did not say, you will find parking places and chicken will always be cheap. And somebody will take you to lunch and you'll hear sermons that make you feel good on the inside. And you'll have conversations that make you feel good about yourself. The blessing is more than some circumstantial benefit. It's much more than that. It says here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The content of the blessing is fruitfulness and multiplication. Fruitfulness and multiplication. You see, there's a difference between receiving a benefit and being fruitful. Don't think that just because you received a benefit, you've become fruitful. Think about this with me. If you take a seed and you plant it in the ground and something grows out of the ground, has that seed become fruitful? If you take a seed, grow it in the, put it in the ground and water it and a tree grows out of the ground, has that, that, that seed become fruitful? When is the seed fruitful? When the tree begins to bear fruit, and what is fruit? When the tree begins to bear fruit, you can walk up to it, pick a piece of fruit from it, take a bite out of it and eat it. 
That is, the tree has become fruitful when it provides a benefit that other people can partake of. And you have become fruitful when you provide a benefit that other people can partake of. You see, it's not, you don't call it blessing because you got chicken for 19 cents a pound. That is a benefit that you can partake of. But when it becomes a benefit that other people can partake of, now that becomes fruitfulness. So a lot of people talk about the gifts they have. You've got to stop talking about the gifts you have and begin to talk about the gifts you give. Because the gifts you have are not your blessings. The gifts that you give, that is your blessings. The minute that you begin to give a gift, now, you're, now you are blessed because you have become fruitful. Because your life provides a benefit that other people can partake of. So fruitfulness means that whatever you do works. It means that if you go to school, you're supposed to be successful in school. It means if you start a business, the business is supposed to work. It means that if you get a job, you're supposed to do well on the job and you're supposed to get promoted. You see, we tend to live below the blessing because we don't know what the blessing is. We're satisfied with parking places and God wants to make you successful in all that you do. You're thankful for chicken. God wants to bless you in all that you do. You've got to go beyond your chicken-mindedness about blessing. You must transcend the chicken in the parking space blessing. Because we'll pray in faith believing for a parking place, won't we? God, I believe for a parking place. But when was the last time you prayed in faith believing for a promotion? When did you pray in faith believing that God was going to bless your company? Did you pray in faith believing that God would give you a business idea that would change an entire region? See, we think it's presumptuous for us to pray for that. It's more presumptuous to pray for, a, pray for a parking place. Maybe the Lord doesn't want you to shop there. Maybe you're going to spend money you don't have. I think it's more godly to pray that God blesses your business so you can provide jobs for people, so that you can provide for your family members, so you can be fruitful. Because provi- it don't bless nobody else that you got a parking place. But it blesses all kind of people. See, you got to think bigger. And you got to think bigger about what you're bringing home. And then multiplication. Multiplication is the step beyond fruitfulness. There's a lot of people who are fruitful but have not yet learned how to multiply. I was talking yesterday to a friend of mine who has a company that he started in Berkeley. And I was talking to him on the phone yesterday. I said, how you doing? And he said, oh, I'm okay. I'm all right. I said, huh, you sound down. Is your company okay? He said, oh, no, the company's great. I said, really? He said, yeah, you know, we've, it's not Willie, by the way. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know. Because folks after the service, oh, be encouraged, Willie. <laughs> Some folks are too prophetic for their own good. They just assume, that, oh, the Lord showed me it was you. Because he said Berkeley. No, that's not prophetic. <laughs> that's, that's pathetic. Some people are moving in the pathetic in the body of Christ. You got your pathetic anointing. <laughs> I got a pathetic word for you. <laughs> See, I'm not jet lagged no more. I'm in my right mind. (laughs) And so he said to me, he said, yeah, you know, my company's doing great. You know, we've blown all of our goals and objectives out of the water. We've grown. We've exceeded what everybody thought we could do. We've won several awards in our industry. And and, uh, we can't get any more fruitful than we are right now in this region. I said, so then why do you sound so depressed? He said, because I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm so successful, I'm bored. I said, well, that's awesome. I said, because there's a level beyond fruitfulness. See, you've become fruitful. Now it's time for you to multiply. 
It's time for you to expand. It's time for you to take this into the next city and the next city and the next city. You, you become fruitful, but the blessing goes beyond fruitfulness. It goes to multiplication. I said, so that's great. You're ready for the next level of blessing. He said, I don't know if I could do that. I said, why not? He said, because I can't reproduce my people. You know how long it took me to build the team that I've got here? I'm doing my best to hold on to this team. How can I go into another city and reproduce that team? Do you know how much energy and effort that would take? And I said, you know what? When you came to this city, you didn't have the team that you had. You didn't have anything, but God bless you to be fruitful. The same God that blessed you to be fruitful will bless you to multiply. So what tends to happen is either there's a breakdown in our faith that God can make us fruitful, or there's a breakdown in our faith that God can cause us to multiply. But either the way to be blessing-minded, we've got to begin to believe that God will make us fruitful and that God will make us multiply. Amen. Amen. But the thing that we need to understand is that the blessing of God, both the blessing of fruitfulness and the blessing of multiplication, is a family blessing. He blessed them, not him, or not her. He did not bless an individual. He blessed a them, not a him and not a her. He blessed a them and he blessed a husband and a wife. And here was the thing. This was the intention of God, that the blessing would rest upon Adam and Eve and then they would bring offspring in the world and the blessing would rest upon their offspring. Those offspring would go out into the world and manifest the blessing everywhere they went. That is, when God gives a blessing, it's supposed to flow through a family line. And in actuality, to the, the degree to which each and every one of us manifests the blessing of God is determined by the way in which that blessing was stewarded within our families. You see, if in my family the blessing of God was not stewarded through right relationships between the members of the family, then I don't know how to go out into the world and manifest the blessing wherever I go. But if that blessing was stewarded properly within my family system, then when I go out into the world, everywhere I go, I can't help but manifest the blessing because the blessing resides with me. I know how to steward it because it was modeled for me and I was taught how to steward it in my home. Now to understand what that looks like, we have to go to Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. And I want you to look at Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 21 and following alongside this passage here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and following. Now what we see in Genesis 27 is that sin entered the world through a family conflict. It was a conflict between husband and wife, between Adam and Eve. And then down the road we see conflict between brother and brother, Cain and Abel. But in between the conflict between husband and wife and the conflict between brother and brother, what's not written but had to be there was a conflict between parent and child. Because if parents parent their children correctly, wisely, and righteously, there will be no conflict between brother and brother or sister and sister or brother and sister. But the conflict between brother and sister is typically rooted in some breakdown between parent and child. You see, one of the things that I saw happen in my family is that further back in my family line, my grandmother, and rest her soul, I don't say this to dishonor her, but simply to, to tell the truth. She treated one of her sons like the golden child and the other one of her sons like the spawn of Satan. I mean, it's the truth. One of them could do no wrong and the other one could do no right. And they grew up hating each other. Because one resented the other, but the breakdown was between parent and child, not between child and child. The siblings grew up at odds with each other simply because of what was implanted in them through their interactions with the parent. And so one thing that my parents made a point to do was never to praise one of us without praising the other ones of us. 
If one of us did well, they would speak well to us and say, you did that well, son, we're proud of you. But then they would turn to the others and say, we're proud of all of our sons. All of you are excellent, but in different ways. And they allowed our excellence to flow out of our capacities in different areas. You see, if I got a B on a test, my dad would take me aside and say, son, you could do better than that. But if my brother got a B on a test, my parents would take him aside and say, great job. We know you worked really hard to do that. Why? Because they knew my capacity in that particular area and they knew his capacity in that particular area. And they did not hold him to the standard of my capacity and they did not hold me to the standard of his capacity. And so, and so it was not equality in the sense that everybody gets treated the same, but everybody gets treated according to their personality and their capacity. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to it in a moment. And so the relationship between parent and child leads to the relationship between child and child. And it flows from the household out into the world. The way in which our children act when they go out into the world is predetermined by the way they act in the home and the way they are taught in the home. Now we see this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 where Paul in verse 21 sets the standard. He says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you got to understand that word submit because we only understand it in the west from a hierarchical perspective. Submit submission and authority seem to go hand in hand and the only way we understand submission is a greater than and a lesser than and the lesser than simply obeys what the greater than says, and that has nothing to do with submission. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't say submit to one another. Because if we're all submitting to one another, then nobody's greater than anybody else. We're all at the same level, but we're submitting to one another, not based on status or based on authority, but he says out of reverence for Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ simply means that in every relationship, I'm sensing the flow of the kingdom of God coming through that relationship, and I'm submitting to Christ in that relationship. And it doesn't matter who you are, if we are in relationship with one another, there's going to be something of Christ's kingdom that flows through you to me, and when I sense it, I'm going to submit to it. It has nothing to do with who you are, it has everything to do with who Christ is. If we get it in our head that we'll only submit to people who have positions and titles, we don't have any reverence for Christ. Because Christ can flow through a five-year-old. And if you don't submit to that, then you don't have any reverence for Christ. And so Paul sets the paradigm in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, And once he sets that paradigm, now he gives us six examples of what that looks like. And it starts in the family. So he says in verse 22, wives, are you ready for this? Uh oh. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He says, this is the first example I'm going to give of what it looks like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, there is an appropriate way that you are to submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. If you reverence Christ, you'll treat your husbands in a certain way. And if you don't treat your husbands this way, it's not that you don't reverence them. You don't reverence Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So well, what if he's a fool? Well, you better submit to that fool. Well, you married that fool. Hello? I don't feel bad for you. You knew he was a fool when you married him, and you still married him. So now submit to that fool. Because maybe he will stop acting a fool if you stop treating him like a fool. Are you hearing me this morning? And then he explains why. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Let me lay this out. The husband 
is the head of the wife. Wives, your husband is your head. People get all upset when I preach that. So, well, I don't like that. Well, take it up with Jesus. I didn't write the Bible. Somebody said to me, well, that's unbiblical. I just read it out of the Bible. This is not theology. I'm just reading the scripture. This is what the Bible says. The husband is the head of the wife. It's for your benefit. Now, now you got to understand, this is a body image. This is not a corporate image. It doesn't mean the husband's the CEO and the wife is the secretary. That's not what it means. Because commands don't always come down from the head. Think about a physical body. Do all the commands come from the head? What happens when you stub your toe? Your toe sends a message up to the head and says, help me. And then your head sends a message to the rest of the body and says, get down there and help that toe. And the rest of the body jumps down to the aid of the toe. Who was in charge at that moment? The toe. Because the toe bone is connected to the foot bone. And so when you're talking about a body that is fully connected in every way, it doesn't have to do with authority. It has to do with need. It has to do with what is appropriate at this moment. So to say that the husband is the head of the wife does not mean that the communication always comes from the top down. It goes in both directions. Are you hearing me? It's not about domination. You following me? See, a lot of people think that love should be unconditional, but respect is earned. And I'm here to tell you that that is not biblical and it's not right. Because wives think my husband's supposed to love me unconditionally, no matter how, how, how big of a fool I act. But I'll respect him when he deserves it. <laughs> respect and love should be unconditional in marriage. Because wives, if you don't respect your husband, your children won't either. The way you treat your husband is teaching your children how they are to respond in relationships of authority. And if you don't give your husband authority in the home, if your children see you disrespecting your husband, overstepping him, shutting him down, putting him down, making him feel little when he makes mistakes, sticking his nose in doo-doo whenever he makes a mess. A lot of wives treat their husbands like dogs. They make a mess, you just stick their nose in it right in front of your kids and you don't realize what you're doing is teaching your children not to respect you or your husband. Because they'll resent you, but they won't respect him and you don't realize that what you're doing is stopping the flow of blessing in the world because now your children don't know how to act at school. You wonder why they disrespect authority at school because they've seen you disrespect your husband in your own house in front of you, in front of them. Remember what I said at the beginning of this message. There's going to be a flood of forgiveness. This isn't no shame, no condemnation. <laughs> I set you up now. But we got to talk about it. we got to keep it right. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Get this in your mind. Wife, you are the church. Husband, you are Christ. Wife, you treat your husband the way the church should treat Christ. That's, I read it right here in the Bible. So I don't like that. Okay, let's move on. Verse 25. Husbands, take advantage of the fact that your wife is commanded to submit to you. And command her to do whatever you want her to do. 
Is that what it says? No. Let me just say this. You know why I preach Ephesians 5.22? Because husbands, you are never allowed to bring this up in your home. No, I'm serious. Husbands, if you're in a fight with your wife, do not quote Ephesians 5.22. The Bible says, wives, submit to your... You, brother, you better learn how to keep the peace. You are not keeping the peace. Because look, we're going to have an arms race. You're going to quote Ephesians 5.22. She's going to quote Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Was that what Christ was doing, throwing out orders? Get in there and wash them dishes. Now get over there and do that laundry. How come you haven't done this? How come you, you think being a husband means you have the right to command your wife and order her around? Is that what Christ did? Or did he take off his robe and put a towel around his waist and get on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples? You know what it means that you're the head husband? It means you have the authority to be the first to serve. Uh, Yeah, right. Wives are clapping now. They weren't clapping five minutes ago. Let me go back to verse 22. See, this is the thing. Wives, if you would submit to your husbands, they'd have no problem loving you. And husbands, if you would love your wives, they'd have no problem submitting to you. I had a husband say, my wife does not submit to my vision for the family. I said, well, what is your vision for the family? What is your vision for her? I said, if if she is not willing to follow you, maybe she doesn't like where you're leading her. Husbands, you know what you need? A prophetic vision for your wife. Honey, this is what I see you doing. You know, when my wife began to trust me because she had this powerful vision for her life and her future. And I'll never forget, I was a seminary student and I was, you know, pouring out my love for her and trying to get her to, you know, come around. And she was hesitant, you know, and I don't know. I got to pray about this. You know, I got to talk to the Lord. And and I remember, and so we started dating and she's like, okay, but she was kind of half in it, you know. Not all the way in it, but she was, you know, not sure because, you know, she's thinking if I marry this dude, my whole vision for my whole ministry is out the door. Her vision was I'm going to graduate Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm going to go to China. I'm going to live in an orphanage. I'm going to serve the Lord for the rest of my life. I'm going to die in an orphanage in China. That was her goal, to die a martyr in an orphanage in China (laughs) on the other side of the world. And so I said, well, you know, let's get married, you know, and me, I was dumb, you know, we just started dating. I'm already talking about marrying her. Why do you think we talk so much? You know, because there was so much foolishness because I didn't have anybody to tell me don't do that. And so she's like, you know, why would I date you? I mean, if I marry you, my, what is your vision? I said, my vision is to stay right here in the United States of America <laughs> and to plant a church and grow it to multiple thousands of people and preach to them here. She's like, well, what about the nations? I'm like, what about them? So she's thinking, if I marry this cat, I've lost my whole vision and my whole ministry. And I'll never forget, I was at Fuller's Theological Seminary. I was coming out of uh, 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 my theology class. And uh, as I was walking down the steps, I saw an open vision of my wife standing on a platform in Africa, preaching to tens of thousands of people and prophesying over the nation. And I saw chains falling off of people and people being set free. And I, I, I ran to her apartment. I knocked on the door. She opened it. I said, I just had a vision of you. 
and I saw you standing on a platform preaching to tens of thousands of people in Africa, prophesying over that nation, and chains were falling off people, and captives were being set free. It's so powerful. You've got such a powerful ministry. Now, I had no idea what that was doing for her. I, I just was, you know, I had this vision, and I shared it with her. You know what that did? It set her free because she saw at that moment that my vision for her future was bigger than her vision for her future. Mm. You want your wife to follow you, get a vision from God for her that's bigger than her vision for her. Because if, you, if your wife can look into your eyes, husbands, and know that you hear from the Lord on her behalf, she will always trust you. But if you're only telling her what God is saying for you, you know, honey, I had a vision, and I was on the other side of the world. <laughs> All right? So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The kind of submission that a wife offers to her husband is called honor and respect. But the kind of submission that a husband offers to his wife is called sacrifice and love. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love means that I will do whatever is necessary to provide for my wife. This is the thing, husbands. You have to think about how to move your wife into her ministry. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, a chapter earlier here, Paul says in verse 11 that he ascended on high, speaking of Jesus, ascending into heaven. He took captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And it said he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, speaking of the fivefold ministry. Then it tells why. Why did God give this powerful fivefold ministry to the church? The first pur- purpose, to, to build up the body of Christ. That is to encourage, strengthen, build up the body of Christ. Second purpose, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Husbands, you have, your, your first ministry is to equip, is, is to edify the body of Christ. Who's the body of Christ? The members of your family first. So the first thing God will anoint you to do, husbands, is build up your family. Build up the body of Christ in your family. Secondly, equip the saints for the works of ministry. Who's the first saint that you're going to equip for ministry, husbands? Your wife. Your job, husbands, is to equip your wife for the work of the ministry. You have to discern what it is that God is calling your wife to do and free her to do it. And this is the key. Husbands, please get this in your spirit. Regardless of the financial ramifications. First thing I learned, this was the first thing the Lord spoke to me about marriage. When my wife and I got married, we were not making much money. I was not making much money at all. But she said to me, I feel like the Lord doesn't want me to work. I said, okay. What do you feel like the Lord wants you to do? She said, the Lord wants me to volunteer at this transitional home for homeless families. I said, you go for it. The Lord just put it in my heart. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, your wife will never never have to work for money. You make the decision now. Your wife will never have to work for money. And I told her, from this day forward, you're not working for money. You're simply doing what the Lord tells you to do. You're free to do what the Lord empowers you to do. And after 14 years of marriage, we're coming up on four, in 14 years in July, this July, 14 years, my wife has never had to work to make money. I've never put that on her. If I have to work two jobs, I'll do it. If I have to take a third job, I'll do it. If the Lord tells my wife to work, she can, but it, she's released to do what God would have her to do. It's, about, it's not a hard, fast rule she's not allowed to work for money because I don't believe in that either. Some husbands say, my wife won't make more than me. Listen, if my wife makes more than me, praise the Lord. Come on, somebody. 
get yours. Bring home that bacon. Because also, listen, husbands, there are seasons where God will send your wife to work and tell you to stay home. There may be. I don't know. I mean, I've seen that happen. If that does happen, don't feel bad about it. If it's the leading of the Lord, go with it. Be her biggest cheerleader. Don't be home all depressed that you're not worth anything, but your wife's worth. Wake up early and make her breakfast. And then massage her shoulders while she's eating it. And say, you go, baby. You go, girl. You go eat this. This a breakfast of champions. You're going to tear it up in the workplace today. Go. You go. Call her on her lunch hour and encourage her. And so it's not a hard, fast rule, but the point is that we're following the leading of the Lord. And I want my wife, as a husband, I want my wife to feel free to go where the Spirit calls her to go, to do what the Spirit enables her to to go, without feeling the financial burden of the household. If God blesses her to work and make money, praise the Lord. But if God, is, if God is moving her to do something else, then I need to support her to do it without putting the financial burden of the household on her. That's my burden to bear. That's what it means to be the head. It means to be responsible. Amen. See, we see being the head first as being a privilege, but it's first a responsibility. And secondly, a privilege. And it's only a privilege so as long as I bear it as a responsibility. So now, this is the thing. This is the principle. The principle is that the relationship between the husband and the wife is the foundation of the flow of the blessing in the world. If there is a breakdown between husband and wife, just like we saw with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there was a breakdown between husband and wife, and it resulted in the entrance of sin into the world because they had a marital problem. We must not underestimate the power of division in our marriage. And we must not underestimate the power of unity in our marriage. I cannot for a moment think that I can put a wall between my wife and I and our child so that we can have an issue with each other, but it doesn't affect our child. It will directly affect our child. Division between my wife and I becomes an inheritance that we pass on to our child because the way I treat her mother is the way she's going to expect her husband to treat her. And if my daughter sees me dishonoring my wife and neglecting my wife, she's going to grow up being attracted to men who will treat her the same way I treat her mother, and she won't even know why. But if she can look in my eyes and see the fire of love for her mother, see, I understand the most powerful thing that I can do for my daughter is love her mama. Loving her mama is the most important thing I will do for her. And when I fall short of that, I need to apologize not only to my wife, but to my daughter. See, there have been moments where I have, I've had to apologize to my daughter for things I've said to her mother. Baby, I know you heard me say that to your mommy, and I'm sorry. I've had to say that. I know you heard mommy and daddy having this conversation, and you heard daddy raise his voice. And I'm sorry. That was wrong. I will never do that again. You see, because I understand that that becomes her inheritance. Very important. And so first and foremost, that relationship between husband and wife. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect and submit to your husbands. Then you get to chapter 6, and he gives a third illustration. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. So the kind of submission that a wife offers to her husband is called respect. The kind of submission that a husband offers to a wife is called sacrifice. And the kind of submission that a child offers to a parent is called obedience. 
Children, obey your parents. And this is a very powerful passage. He said, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Notice the phrase, in the Lord. Paul does not always say, in the Lord. Sometimes he says, in Christ. And when he says, in Christ, he means something different than when he says, in the Lord. He used, those are not interchangeable. When he says in Christ, he's talking about in his sacrifice, in his death. He's talking about the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But when he says in the Lord, he means in his authority and in his power. So when he says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1, he means God chose us through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But when he says children obey your parents in the Lord, he means in the authority of the Lord. He means obey your parents because this is what God wants you to do. And by obeying your parents, you are submitting to the authority of the Lord. And then he says, this is right, and it's the first command with promise. Because if you go back to the Ten Commandments when it says, honor your father and your mother so that it may go well with you, that your days may be long in the earth. Translation. Children... If you don't obey your parents, God's going to kill you. (laughs) That's what it says. Well, I don't like that. Well, take it up with Jesus. It's the Bible. And so children, we must... Children must learn to obey their parents. And I understand that it's my responsibility as a father to teach my daughter how to obey me. Now, there's this, this, this idea that is very prevalent in Western culture that we should allow our children to do things the way they want. You know, let them make their own decisions. Let them, you know, let me tell you something. You will either teach your children or their friends will. Parents, you don't talk to your kids about sex? Don't worry. Jamal and Lucretia will. Jose, Jeff, whoever it is at school, somebody's going to educate your kids. I'd rather be the one that educate. Well, I'd rather my wife be the one that educates my daughter about the birds and the bees. Where'd we get that idea of the birds and the bees? What it got to do with birds or bees? My God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mothers. Now we get to verse 4. There's also a form of submission that fathers and mothers should offer to their children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I looked at that word in the Greek, to provoke or to exasperate. That's the word. Do not exasperate your children. What does that mean? It means that in every act of correction... You are seeking to discern what your child can handle. And you will not push your child past the limit of what they can handle. Because there's a limit. And if you push your child past that limit, you will create rebellion. Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, every parent needs to read that book. Specifically, his chapter on legitimacy and authority. When authority is, when it doesn't make sense... That is, the the person that is under authority has to understand it. It's got to make sense. Number two, when it is not consistently applied across the board, 
And number three, when the person under authority does not have a voice in the matter, then that use of authority is deemed to be illegitimate. And when authority is deemed to be illegitimate, it creates rebellion. So if I exercise authority in a way that causes you to feel like, that ain't right, it's actually going to bring rebellion out of the house. And he gives all these historical examples of how when governments have applied authority in ways that were not deemed legitimate by the people, the people always overthrew those governments. It created the opposite of what it was attempting to create. And when we push our children past their limits, we actually make them more rebellious. And so that means we have to know our children and understand what their limits are. And the key is when we push our children past their limits and then they resort, they become rebellious, the only way we know how to put down rebellion is through intimidation. And let me tell you something, parents. Intimidation is a demonic spirit. And if you use intimidation as a means of behavioral modification, you will subject your children to demonic oppression. And you will teach them to be intimidated by authority. And they will go to school and be intimidated by their teachers. And they will go to the workplace and be intimidated by their bosses. They will always be subject to intimidation. You want your children to be bold in the world, not intimidated in the world. And the only way to make them bold in the world is to teach them how to be bold in the home. But you also want them to be in order in the world. You want them to be boldly in order. And so you also have to teach them how to be in order in the home. Because if you do not properly discipline your children, you let them act a fool, they're going to go into the world and act a fool, and the people in the world are not going to be as patient as you are. That's right. (laughs) All right. So fathers, do not provoke your children. Do not exasperate them. Empathy. There's a skill that we teach to married couples that it applies to every relationship. Empathic listening and empathic sharing. Empathy is the ability to feel what another person is feeling as if it's your own feelings. So if I'm talking to Stephanie and I'm listening to her, if I'm listening to what she's sharing, if I'm listening empathically, I'm hearing what she's sharing and I'm feeling what she's feeling as if it were my own. Okay? And when I'm sharing, I'm sharing empathically, meaning I'm sharing with her, but I'm aware of what my words are causing her to feel. And I'm sensing her limits. And when I start rubbing up against her limits, I back up. Because the goal is, I have a goal in this conversation. I want to get somewhere with Stephanie. But I understand that if I plow her boundaries, and if I push past her limits, she won't be able to hear me anymore, even if I'm saying the right thing. She won't be able to hear me, and because she won't be able to hear me, the conversation will ultimately fail, and it will have the opposite result of what I intended. And so when we are disciplining our children, we must understand that the goal is correction, not punishment. What is punishment? Punishment is simply, this is the result of the crime that you've committed. I'm going to take it out on your hide. And so often in meeting out punishment, we are taking out our personal frustrations on our children. But correction is, I need you first to understand that what you did was wrong. And secondly, I need a change of your heart so that from the inside of your heart, you make a decision not to do it again. Maybe a beating does not accomplish that. Sometimes, you know, you know, spanking your children, and I'll just say this, I believe spanking your children is good when they're small. 
a swat on the hand because sometimes little children, they don't understand anything but pain. Don't touch that. Oh, now I understand. (laughs) But when your child is 13 or 14 years old, beating them simply communicates pain. They will not wake up from that and say, I learned a valuable lesson. It does not shift their ethics. It simply makes them afraid of you. Now, every home is going to have to figure this out. And, I, and I, you know, we, we make provision for different families to do it differently. But let me say this. There is such a thing as child abuse. There sure is. And child abuse does not teach your child anything but to wait until they're old enough to get out of your house and they can act a fool and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? So do not exasperate your children. We also have to understand that everybody's different. The way every child responds to correction is different. Just like every adult responds to correction differently. Remember, I was, I was serving a church in Santa Barbara when I was a, a, a Fuller Seminary student. And there was a guy in the congregation, and I was talking to him about something, and I was trying to talk gently to him. But as I'm talking to him, I realized that this dude only understood one language. I had to punch him in the stomach as hard as I could. Not physically, but with my words. So finally, I got up in his face, and I was pointing the finger at him, and I'm yelling at him. I'm like, you cannot do this. You know, I'm just in his face. My wife looked out the window. She's in my office. She saw me, and she fell on her face and started crying out to God because she thought I'd lost my temper. I hadn't. I was very calm inside, but I understood this is the only way to get through to this man. The next day, he came to me in tears thanking me. He said, nobody ever loved me enough to get in my face like that. Thank you so much. Whereas if I did that to some, if I did that to Stephanie, it would crush her. If somebody did that to me, it would crush me. But that's how this particular man needed to be dealt with. And so it's not an all one size fits all as far as correction with your children. We must sense what each one is able to handle and correct our children within the boundaries of what they can handle so that we do not exasperate them. Now look at this. Look at the way this plays out for Paul. First, husbands and wives, then parents and children. And then he moves to the fifth and sixth examples in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And then going down in verse 9, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. So he says the kind of submission a wife offers a husband is called respect. The kind of submission a husband offers a wife is called sacrifice. The kind of submission a child offers a parent is called obedience. The kind of submission a parent offers a child is called encouragement. And the kind of submission that an employee offers an employer is called service. And the kind of submission that an employer offers an employee is called fairness. These are six different examples of the principle he gave in 521. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, meaning there's an appropriate response of submission to Christ in every form of direction, moving, every form of relationship moving in both directions, up and down. When he talks about slaves and masters, he's talking about every form of leadership and followership outside of the home. And notice he starts husband, wife, parent, child, because when that is in order, then when your children go out into the world, they know how to function in these other relationships. They know how to be the boss, and they know how to be the employee. And they know how to be both. But if they don't learn it in the home, they're not going to know how to manifest it when they go out of the home. So think about Joseph for a minute. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. Now, his mother was named Rachel. 
But Rachel was not Jacob's only wife. Jacob also had a wife named Leah. And the Bible said that Leah was tender-eyed. My mama would have said she was cock-eyed. It was clear from the Bible that Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved him some Rachel. He worked for seven years to marry her. He went to her daddy and said, I want to marry your daughter. He said, work for me for seven years and you can have her. He said, no problem. And he worked for seven years and he said that seven years felt like a few days to him because he loved her so much. And then on the wedding night, he woke up the next morning and guess what? It was her sister in the bed with him. Scandalous. Now, how do you think he felt about her for the rest of her life? He never loved her. She was the wife that he was tricked into marrying, not the one he loved. How do you think her kids acted? Her kids never looked into the eyes of their daddy and saw a fire of love for their mama. And he treated her kids the same way. And then he had his concubines, which were his mistresses or his girlfriends. But they kept, you know, it was all in the family at that time. You know, oh, there's my concubine. She lives right over there. And here's my other wife. And I mean, that's just the way they did it back then. Remember when Jacob was going to meet Esau after praying all night? I will not let you go till you bless me. He had that permitting. All he was saying to God was, please don't let Esau kill me tomorrow. And then the next day, he still doesn't know if Esau is going to kill him or not. So he lines up his family. So first he puts his concubines. Billa and what was the other concubine's name? Huh? You know Paulie, right? Paulina? Okay. So Billa and... Oscar, help me out. Anyway. Jane. <laughs> Jane. <laughs> Let's call her Jane. <laughs> Gloria and Jane. So he put Billa and her kids, the second concubine and her kids, and then Leah and her kids, and he put like a half mile between each. Why was he doing that? And then way at the back, Rachel and Joseph. You know what he was doing? If Esau starts killing folk, he'll kill the ones that I like the least first. <laughs> That's what he did. And then he went ahead of them. If he kills me, the ones I like the most are at the back. And he tells Rachel, if you hear screaming up there, run that way. <laughs> Joseph is the 11th son. And he's the only son at this point of Rachel. All Joseph's life, he could look into his father's eyes and see a burning love for his mama. And Jacob treats Joseph according to the way he feels for his mama. Jacob loves Rachel and Jacob loves Joseph. I mean, Jacob was clothing Joseph in like eight-piece T.D. Jake suits. <laughs> Remember T.D. Jakes used to wear like gold and purple suits and then sweat right through it? <laughs> it would be black by the end of his sermon. <laughs> you remember that? I remember one of, I used to watch him religiously. In one of his sermons, he had sweated right through a purple suit and then asked, then asked a brother to come up and give him a hug. <laughs> I was like, I would have said, no, Bishop. <laughs> he's, got Jake, he's got Joseph walking around in zoot suits. And so there's this honor 
and this nurture between Jacob and Joseph. Joseph obeys his father, and his father nurtures him, never exasperates him. And then Joseph sees Jacob loving his, his wife and sees Rachel honoring and respecting her husband. Their relationship was right, and their relationship was right. And so when Joseph is sold into slavery, he knows how to act when he gets to Potiphar's house. You see, that's why the blessing broke out wherever Joseph went. Not just because he was a dreamer, or it was because of what he learned in his family system. Because he was raised right, he knew how to act. I would have been, I would have been a horrible slave. Potiphar would ask for his money back if he bought me. Can you imagine your first day as a slave? Potiphar says, mop that floor. I would have done just enough not to get whooped. <laughs> I'm just trying not to get beat. Joseph served vigorously, enthusiastically, and excellently. He understood authority differently. He did not understand authority in an oppressive sense because he was not oppressed in his own household. And so he wouldn't jump to conclusions that his boss is mistreating him because he never felt his father was mistreating him. And so even when his boss was mistreating him, he gave him the benefit of the doubt. He knew how to be bold and submissive at the same time. He was submissive to Potiphar, but he was bold with Potiphar. He did not carry an inferiority complex. Why? Because of the way he was treated in his family system. And because it was right in his family system, he manifested the blessing wherever he went. And so in Potiphar's house, he was fruitful and he multiplied and he began to fill that house and subdue it. And when his Potiphar's wife turned against him and he was thrown into prison, what did he do in prison? He was fruitful and he multiplied and he began to fill that prison and subdue it. And then when he was taken and put in Pharaoh's court, what did he do in Pharaoh's court? He was fruitful and he multiplied and he filled that nation and began to subdue it. It's the blessing of Adam and Eve. Joseph is living it out. Why? Because he came from a family line of blessing. And it was modeled relationally in his household. He knew how to take dominion outside of the house because he learned bold submission inside of the house. See, blessing starts with the family. Now, you remember I said to you at the, at the beginning of this message that there's three groups of people in this room right now. First group of people, you're looking back and you're saying, no wonder I can't get along at work. No wonder I don't do well in school. My daddy didn't love my mama. I had a friend who watched his father kill his mother when he was five years old. And he had repressed that memory, and it came back to him when he was an adult. And he called his aunt, and he told her the whole story, sobbing and in tears. His father killed his mother in front of his eyes. What do you think that did to him? And some of you are sitting back, sitting here today, and you're thinking back to your childhood. And you're realizing, this is why I couldn't get ahead in life. Because of what happened in my household. Others of you are parents and you're thinking back on the way you raised your children. 
And you're thinking, no wonder my children can't get ahead. The way I raised them was wrong. Some of you are thinking about your marriages and saying, the way I've been treating my wife or the way I've been treating my husband is wrong. Others of you are thinking back and you're, you're feeling both. It was done to me wrong when I was growing up and that's why I did it wrong as I was raising my family. I laid out the standard today, but you know what? You can't go back and get it back. I didn't lay it out so you can go back to the people who did you wrong and tell them. You know, when I was a college student, for some reason I went on this campaign of telling my parents everything they did wrong. I thought it was my right. Because you know what? I'm not a child anymore. Remember that time? Remember that time? I can't tell you how many remember that times I gave my parents over those four years of college. I reminded them of everything. Everything. And you know me, I got a memory like an elephant. When I was two years old, I did not break that lamp. <laughs> How do you remember that? It's a gift. God has given me a gift to remember everything wrong you've done. You know what I began to realize? That looking back and remembering what went wrong in my upbringing wasn't helping me get ahead in life. It was just holding me back. And you know what? It was holding my parents back too. And finally, the Lord came to me. He said, son, you can either forgive this or you can relive this. If you forgive it, you'll leave it in your past. If you don't forgive it, you'll reproduce it in your future. And my wife began to teach me about bitter root judgments. We weren't married yet. But she began to teach me that if I did not forgive those who had come before me and those who, who I felt had done me wrong in the past, if I did not forgive, then I would be inadvertently reproduce the very things that I hated in my family. And so I began to forgive. And you know what I found? That sometimes you can't forgive by your own power. See, some of us in this room right now have been working on forgiving some people for years. Maybe even decades. You say, how do I forgive? Maybe I need to go to therapy. You can spend 20 years in therapy and still not forgive. First thing is to embrace our powerlessness. Actually, at the end of the day, my forgiveness doesn't mean a whole lot. But what did Jesus do when he was on the cross? Did he say, Father, I forgive them. I forgive them for everything they've done. Is that what he did? Because there comes a point when your soul is in so much agony that no matter how hard you try, you can't forgive. And on the cross, his soul was in agony. And he knew better than to say, Father, I forgive. And so he said, Father, forgive them. Father, I'm asking you to forgive. I'm asking you to forgive at the place where I don't feel like I have the power to forgive. I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking you to override my inability to forgive. Forgive by your power what I cannot forgive by my power. Father, I'm trusting you. Because Jesus knew that the cross was all about forgiveness. He knew that the purpose of it was to release supernatural forgiveness to the world. But he knew at that moment that he needed the Father to intervene. Father, 
Forgive them. They didn't know what they're doing. And I came to a place where I had to look back on my past and say, Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. They did the best they could, but they didn't know what they were doing. They did the best they could. Father, forgive. And when you begin to pray that prayer, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Suddenly, by faith, you begin to enter into the forgiveness of the Father. And the forgiveness of the Father has been around for 2,000 years. His forgiveness is instantaneous. Mine would take a lifetime, and I still wouldn't fully forgive. You know what I mean? I, I can have you know temporary bouts, temporary spurts of forgiveness. But then a few months later, I'll pull you out of my heart and smack you around again in my head. You know you've forgiven when you no longer need to take that person out and smack them around anymore. You know what happened to me? As I began to forgive, I began to become acutely aware in a way that was deeper than I was ever aware before of how much my parents loved me. Did they make some mistakes? Of course. But I, I came to discover that all of us mess up our kids in some way. I mean, if I were to stand here and tell you my daughter's going to be healthy in every way because of the way I raised her, I'd be telling you a lie. She'll send me the therapy bill when she's about 21, 22. <laughs> Only in hindsight, while I look back and say, ooh, I messed her up there, didn't I? I jacked her up. It's a, it's, it's, parenting is tough. Because you'll read two different experts, and one of them say, if you do this to your kid, you will ruin them for life. And then the next one will say exactly the opposite. If you do this to your kid, you'll, if you do what that expert said, you'll ruin them for life. No matter what I do, I'm going to ruin my kid. Mess her up for life. Jack her up. But you know what? I'll never fail her. You know why? Because love never fails. And I was able to look back and say, my parents love me. I mean, they love me. They have always loved me. They've loved me with all of their heart. And you know what? They didn't fail. I think I turned out I. <laughs> and when forgiveness came, forgiveness washed away all of these negative memories. And all of a sudden, these wonderful memories began to emerge. About 10 years ago, I was invited, I was asked to go to San Francisco and pray for somebody in the hospital. And as I was walking down this particular street, I had a flashback. I flashed back to my dad with this big old beard and big old sunglasses. My brother was in a stroller about two years old. My other brother was running next to him about four years old, wearing these striped shorts, and I was running. And we were running down that street, and we were laughing, and we were playing. And I called my dad. I was like, Dad, you know such and such a street? He goes, yeah. I, said, I just remembered us, us running down that street. You were pushing Mark in the stroller, and me and Josh were running alongside you, and we were having so much fun. that I just remembered that. I'm on that street right now. He goes, oh, yeah, so-and-so lived on that street. We were going to his house. I started having all these wonderful memories. I had a memory of uh, when I was two years old. My dad was repainting the house inside. He had all this oil-based paint. And there was this little can of paint that was open. And to me, that was an invitation to play. <laughs> I ran and grabbed that pan, can. I picked it up. And my dad was about 10 feet away. He's like, son, put the paint down, son. <laughs> Benjamin, <laughs> give me the paint. <laughs> and I went... 
I threw that can, paint flew everywhere. You know what he did? He laughed. Ten years later, I remember looking at that carpet and seeing the streak of paint on the floor. still there. It's like, I remember that. <laughs> I'll never forget that day. And let me tell you why that's important. Because no matter how tough your upbringing was, there's a seed of something good that God gave you that you've got to receive and give away. Even if you think of, even if 99.9% of it was bad, you can think of that 0.1%. Forgiveness can remove that 99.9%. And it can cause that 0.1% to emerge. And you grab it and say, this is what I'm going to give to my children. This is the inheritance that I'm going to take and pass on to my children. I set the standard today from the word of God. But now there's a release of forgiveness. Forgiveness for the wrong that was done to you. But also forgiveness for the wrong that you've done. Some of y'all here messed up your kids. It's okay, I messed mine up too. I've had to say I'm sorry to my daughter many times. I know, I'm so I'm such a calm person, right? Who would guess? There's forgiveness. Bow your heads. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'd pour out the balm of Gilead and that you'd heal. We set the standard, but we resist condemnation. We set the standard, but we remove guilt. We set the standard, but we release the power of God to heal the pain. And we set the standard to cause there to be a release of hope for tomorrow because many of you here today, regardless of what your background is, you're making a decision in your heart right now. This goes no further. Yes, this happened in the past and I forgive it, but it goes no further. But you're going to make a differentiation that is non-judgmental. See, there's things that I do differently from my parents, but I do them differently from a non-judgmental perspective. Non-judgmental means it's forgiven. They did the best they had with what they had. The best they could with what they have. And now I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. But I have as my inheritance not only their successes, but their failures. It's part of my inheritance. I can do better. Every child is supposed to do better than their parents did. And I'm going to do some things better because I received, because they were humble enough to give me this inheritance. But Father, I pray right now in the name of Jesus for a flood of forgiveness to wash over this house over every mind and every heart. God, so many in this place have been opened up by this message. But Holy Spirit, I pray you would close us up. You have to open us up to operate. Take out what needs to be taken out. And then sew us up. God, don't let anybody leave here bleeding today. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He's close to the brokenhearted and saves such as trust in Him. God cannot resist the brokenhearted. You are irresistible to the Father. He loves you with an everlasting love. Some of you can say, your mother and father forsook you. But even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me, the psalmist said. And God is here to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. 
You say, well, I couldn't make it in the world because I didn't have a father and I didn't have a mother and I didn't have that love. But God says, I'm here to fill the gap that was left. I am a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. And it says the Lord puts the destitute in families. That's who he is. It's what he does. And I say to you today in the name of Jesus that you have a father who loves you and he knows your name. And his love is so powerful that it can overcome everything that went wrong in your past. It can overcome. It can heal. You're accepted today. I break rejection off of your heart today in the name of Jesus and the bitterness that goes with it. I remove it from your heart in the name of Jesus. And I speak the healing power that is in the name of Jesus over your heart and mind right now. All you have to do to receive it is to forgive. And I believe that God can empower you to forgive right now. So how do I forgive when I don't know how to forgive? Begin to pray the prayer of Jesus right now. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. He didn't know what he was doing. She didn't know what he was doing. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive me. I didn't know what I was doing. Right now, with your own voice, I want you just to begin to pray that prayer. This is going to seal it up. Father, forgive him. He didn't know what he was doing. Father, forgive her. Don't say names. Just say him, her, me, them. Just begin to respond to God right now. Say it out loud. It's going to do something for you if you speak it out. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive me. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive. Just begin to speak it out. Let it come out of your mouth right now. Don't hold it in. Let it go. You carried it for long enough. Let it go. Let the Father take it. Father, forgive. Father, forgive. Speak it forth with your mouth. Won't you do it? Does anybody have the boldness just to cry it out? Father, forgive. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive them. Yes, that's it. That's it. Just let it come forth. Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. Just let it out. Come on. Some of you need to say it again and again. Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive. Yes. There's healing flowing all through this room right now. There's healing flowing all through this room right now. Healing, healing of the past. Healing of the past, healing of it. Closing up that place in your heart that was open. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, forgive. Let your forgiveness flow. Let it flow. Let it flow. Let it flow in every family line. Let it flow in every family line. Let it flow. Let it flow through parent and child. Let it flow from husband to wife, from wife to husband. Let it flow. Let it flow. Remove. Remove the dividing line. Father, let forgiveness flow. Let it flow. Let it heal every family. Let it put back together again what has fallen apart. Forgive. Heal. Mend. 
touch. Hallelujah. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. It stops here. It stops here. It stops here. A new line of blessings beginning now. A new generational blessing. And generational blessing begins when you begin to bless the generations. I speak blessing over my parents today in the name of Jesus. Despite their mistakes, I don't remember their mistakes. I remember. I speak blessing over my parents. I speak blessing over my grandparents today. My great-grandparents. I speak blessing. Just begin to speak blessing on the generations. I speak blessing over my children today in the name of Jesus. I speak blessing in both directions in Jesus' name. Just begin to speak it forth. Just, Just another... 20 seconds. I speak blessing. I speak blessing. I speak blessing. I speak blessing today. The blessing of the Lord. Blessing upon my family. I speak blessing upon your family today. I speak blessing over your family today. I speak blessing over your family. Now just turn to somebody and say, I speak blessing over your family today. I speak blessing over your family. I speak blessing over your family today. I speak blessing over your family today. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. God, we give you all of the praise. We adore you, we thank you, you're such an awesome God. You're such a mighty God. We adore you, we bless you, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Everybody stand to your feet right now. Stand to your feet right now. And just lift your hands to the Father. And just for one more moment, just give Him the praise. We worship and adore you, God. We bless your holy name, O God. Hallelujah. One generation will declare your works to another. We give you the praise today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Glory unto your name, O God. Hallelujah. Now may the God of peace, who through the eternal spirit brought back forth from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he keep you firm and steadfast to the end. May he present you blameless before his glorious presence, without fault and with great joy. And may he be glorified in the church forever. In the name of his son Jesus, we speak this blessing. Amen. God bless you. We're dismissed.